Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 5. Viola. Viola insisted on driving. The tea had helped, as had the brandy. It had been painful being in the Capucci's house. Nothing had changed, really, but in the 70s, growing up, it had been funky. Now it was kitsch. Mr. and Mrs. Capucci were both artists. She religious, and her husband, an art director, in advertising days of martini lunches. Viola didn't remember how she got to their house and assumed that Julian had carried her. She only remembered that her mother had gotten cancer and had been gone within three months. Mrs. Capucci said they had tried to contact her, spoken to Viola's husband even. She said she had called herself and that Viola's nice friend Kim had looked after Miss Jean until the end. They'd held off burying Miss Jean, hoping Viola would come home. It was that part of the story that played over and over in Viola's head. She had politely declined the Capucci's offer to stay and knew she had to go to Kimberly's that night. So with single purpose, she was behind the wheel, navigating the streets of the West Village to her old home and her old friend. Mark. He put Kimberly in a car around 2 a.m. and went back up to the hotel suite. Jesse's door was open, so he knew he wasn't there. It had been a perfect day. It had been the perfect ending. He had left no room for questions about romance or his view of the relationship. Tourist. Fling, he settled on the word. Why give it more importance than it deserved? It had had the marks of becoming messy and, in retrospect, was completely unnecessary. An unusual distraction. But had he gone too far in the pursuit of his pleasures? As quickly as that thought came, it left. The Jesse file was closed. It was useless to dwell on past actions. No harm had been done. Family and possessions were all intact. He shut the door to his room and ordered a wake-up call for 7.30 a.m. Kimberly. The car was in front of her stoop before she noticed the figure sitting on his steps. Her heart quickened as one shape became familiar. A woman sat on the steps, and on the step below, between her legs, with his head resting on her knee, dozing, was a boy Kimberly guessed to be in his late teens. The scene reminded her of a Pieta she'd seen in Italy. She got out of the car and stood at the bottom of the steps and locked eyes with the seated woman. She noticed tears were streaming down the face of the woman, and she felt her own. Finally, Viola spoke. You were right. Jesse. He had reached Battery Park and made his way to the promenade. The boy was clear in his instructions to get to the water. He wondered how he'd resist the urge to swim, and he wondered how long he'd last. He smirked to himself, thinking the chemicals on the Hudson might get to him first. He figured he'd go to where the boats were moored and slip into the water unnoticed. Even though the boy kept urging him on and he felt a slave to his voice, something kept nagging him. It wasn't right. Something wasn't right. There was a flaw in the plan. He reached for his phone to check the time, and it hit him. Providing for Annie and the kids. 
a suicide would mean they'd be left with nothing and a disappearance in New York would be messy. He didn't want Annie to go through that. It would have to look like an accident. He turned and slowly retraced his steps out of Battery Park, burying the boy's weakening protests as he headed towards Tribeca. The boy whispered that his way was the best, but Jesse, stronger now, told the boy to be quiet. The boy had been right, that life could not go on as it had, so death was the only alternative. But the boy was selfish, and Jesse, at his purest self, was not. He knew his responsibilities. A plan was beginning to form. Viola. Viola woke Julian up and helped him to his feet. Viola's eyes welled up with tears as she walked into the townhouse and remembered every moment from her life 12 years before. Kimberly suggested the blue room for Julian, and Viola nodded, and the three of them went up the stairs. They settled and exhausted Julian, who was asleep, fully clothed, the minute his head hit the pillow. Viola removed his shoes and they left him. Viola and Kimberly found themselves in the kitchen and time reverted. Kimberly reached for the wine glasses and Viola went to the cupboard where the wine had always been kept and then to the drawer where the wine key was. Viola marveled at their old routine returned without so much as a preamble. It was back as if she'd never left never walked away from her part of the business or a life that had made her happy. They sat across from each other at the kitchen table, and without provocation, she began to talk. It took almost four years before I could even admit it to myself what a complete and utter clusterfuck it all was. I just couldn't admit I had made such a colossal mistake, destroyed everything I... We'd worked so hard to build... Not just the business, because I knew it was indestructible, but our friendship, our life, for some hick, some uneducated backwards Neanderthal. After all, it was years of asking myself why and thinking there must be something wrong with me. So it was okay that he was yelling and shouting at me. And then by the time the hitting started, I was drowning. I would probably be dead if it wasn't for Julian. Loving him, becoming his mother, was the only thing that kept me alive. He was something that gave me hope. Luckily, the idiot traveled a little for his job until he retired about four years ago and opened a garage. I mean, that's the ironic part. He was not technically uneducated, he had some college, but he was just such a hick in his soul. In the beginning, just before it got to be a bad marriage, you know, we just fought a lot. Years later, when I began to analyze the demise, I realized what it was. I could see it. He was in a constant battle between the educated, sophisticated person he wanted to be, the person I'd met, and the backwards hick in his soul. The hick won. Oh, Kimmy, there were things I found out. Horrible things. His father had murdered his mother, battered her to death, made it look like an accident by dropping her battered body down the stairs, and he'd helped him. This is the nightmare I landed in, Kimmy. Me. I couldn't admit it. 
not to myself or you or anyone. But then a few years ago, I started picking up something about Julian. He's gay. And I started preparing for the day I would have to get him out of there. It brought me back to life. It was all planned down to the second. And then you know what the kid does? He decides to come clean. Tell his father the truth about himself. Of course, he didn't tell me before. I don't know what I would have done. So instead, I sat in the car freaking out because he was over an hour late to meet me. The next thing I knew was Julian was stumbling towards the car, and I'm hearing the crack of a shotgun. I'm not even sure if he knew I was in the car. I'd bought one with cash and hidden it so he'd have no way to track us or say I'd stolen his. I had come to that. Can you believe I landed in this nightmare? Julian's a good kid. He's smart, too. He knew his only hope of surviving the certain beating was to wear extra clothing and padding. It helps some, at least with the physical. But the emotional is more what I'm worried about. As it is, I'm going to go broke getting him a good therapist. And then Viola laughed. So pleased to be back in New York and sound like a New Yorker. Therapy. A New York therapist who wouldn't try to fix the boy's specialness. But the laughter subsided into sobs. Kimberly. Kimberly knelt next to Viola and put her arms around her. Tears were streaming down her own face. And selfishly, she was relieved that Viola hadn't noticed her face. Vi's story was, as she suspected, but still horrific to hear. One's friends are not supposed to suffer. One's friends are not supposed to go live in a lifetime movie. Those were other people's stories, not Vi's. They had always run a discreet business, and the cover of being a psychologist was so flawless that the unseemly side of prostitution never touched them. They had created a charmed life for themselves. They shut down for a few months every year to give everyone a rest. The Johns only came by referrals, and a new John, unbeknownst to him, was background-checked. They had always had friends in high places. In fact, it had been Viola's contact that had set up the background checks, so it was ironic that Viola had landed in the nightmare. It was also Viola's contact that had insisted Kimberly install an alarm with the special feature of photographing the entrance every ten seconds. Kimberly wondered how their lives had landed here in chaos and disillusionment. She held her friend tighter. It's over, Vi. It's over. You can start again, this time with Julian. Kimberly had instantly seen the connection between Viola and Julian, and had often wondered if that was the real reason Viola had married the guy. Kimberly knew how long Viola had mourned the abortion she'd had. It seemed like a part of her had hardened, shut down, or just fell away from that moment on. Kimberly remembered feeling lost, helpless, trying to reach a part of a friend. Nothing had ever been off limits between the two of them. She didn't know how to get it back. Viola had convinced herself the child had been a boy. So when she announced she was getting married and he had a young son, Kimberly knew she'd got a little boy back. Kimberly didn't want to admit that she'd expected this. 
that Viola would be back here with Julian. There wasn't any real pleasure in being right, but there was relief. She said it again. It's over, Vi. It's over. Viola's breathing had become more regular. It is over, isn't it? I lived in hell for so long, it's hard to believe it's over. She was silent for a moment, and Kimberly continued to stroke her back. She felt Viola take a deep breath and say, I need to know about my mother. Kimberly felt Viola tense, stealing herself for the truth of her mother's death. Oh, Vi, I wish I knew what to say to make it untrue, to make it less painful. Kimberly was at a loss in this unfamiliar role of being the bearer of disturbing news. The force of Viola's angry snow was shocking to hear. Kimmy, I've been through so much, so much pain, so much humiliation, and this, the fact that the bastard could be that cruel as to not tell me my own mother was sick and dying. There's nothing you can say to take away the pain. I just need to know. I just need to know how angry she was, how much she missed me, how hurt she was that I wasn't there to say goodbye. They had been friends for too long. They had been through too much. Kimberly sat back on her knees, still on the floor, and looked Viola straight in the eye. She waited for you. She waited as long as she could hold on. She fought back the cancer as long as she could. There were times I would sit by her bed or hold her hand as she rested. She would argue in her sleep and say, No, or not yet, I'm waiting for my baby. Your sister would cluck and say she's confused, but I knew she was waiting for you. In the end, it wasn't the cancer that killed her. It was a broken heart. That's the truth. I'm sorry. With a shaking hand, Viola handed Kimberly her wine, and they remained silent. Kimberly took a deep breath and went on. She knew she had to tell her everything. Your mother's cousin Lily came to the funeral. She brought me some of the letters your mother wrote her. Why? She knew. She instinctively knew how bad things were for you. Do you have them? The letters? Uh, yes. Get them. Kimberly got the letters from her study and handed them to Vi. She held them for a second as she handed them to her. Are you sure you want to read? She stopped herself and released the letters to Vi. Vi looked at them. Kimberly put them all in tissue paper and put an orange bow around them. Orange was Miss Jean's favorite color. Viola handed them back to Kimberly and said, Read them to me, please. Kimberly sat down on the other side of the table, unwrapped them, and poured more wine for both of them. She put her glasses on and read, Dear Lily, I don't, I don't know, where, know to where to start. I'm so sick and upset. She did it. She married him. After all I did, begged and pleaded, she did it. I nearly didn't walk her down the aisle. I was so sick to my stomach. In fact, I thought I might throw up. I half wanted to on his shoes. It would have made me feel better. But she was determined. She gets that from me. Once she puts her mind to something, that's what she'll do and that's what she did. I just don't understand why. 
Why marriage? Why him? Why marriage to him? I suspect the answer has something to do with his son. But obviously, she was convinced she loves him. I just don't understand. I raised her better than this. She's wasting her education. I know I'm ranting and rambling, Lily, but I just can't get over it. I wished I'd told you to come, but it was probably for the best that you didn't. Such a waste of money for you and come all this way and see this ridiculous spectacle of my beautiful daughter marrying this ignorant man. An American, no less. How did it happen? He's uneducated. Okay, some college. But really, how? I wouldn't care what nationality he was if he was educated. But he wasn't. And then, you know what was the worst? The part I don't see how she didn't see. It was that thing we've always talked about. That reason you went back home to Barbados. That chip on his shoulder. That shame of being black. He had no pride of self. Oh, he talked a good game. Or he must have for her to fall so. But oh, Lily, she wouldn't listen to sense. Maybe it was his looks. I can't deny he was handsome. I'm at a loss, just at a loss. Even Kimberly begged her. You remember her, don't you, Lily? Viola's friend and business partner. Actually, I don't think you liked her much. You found her cold. But you eventually conceded good-intentioned. I know I need to get over this. But how does one get over a broken heart? I think your child breaking your heart is much worse than a lover. You've poured all your hopes and dreams into your child. Everything you didn't get and didn't do, you pour into them. Viola, until her wedding day, had never disappointed me. Yes, Lily, even that didn't disappoint me. I understood their joke. I applauded their joke. Marriage was the joke to me. And now my daughter is living a new joke, but it's not funny. It makes me cry. My heart is broken. I'll write again soon, Lily, and be a better friend, I promise. I'll ask you about your life instead of rambling, but I knew you'd want to know if she actually went through with it. And she did, and broke her mother's heart. Much love, Much love my dear, my dear friend. friend. Jean. Jean. In a strangled voice, Viola said, Read another one. Kimberly didn't want to read them anymore. It was too painful. It brought Miss Jean back to life. And she missed it too. They'd gotten each other through Viola's leaving and subsequent disappearance. She picked up another letter and began to read. Dear Lily, Lily thank, thank you, you for the call me. the other day. It was lovely to hear your voice. It's good to hear that your family is doing so well. I'm sure you are very proud of them. My friend, I appreciate your thoughts and promise of prayers for my Viola. She won't tell me anything specific, but I know by the tone of her voice 
she's not happy. She almost sounds afraid, but I wonder if it's my imagination. They've been married now for two years, and I've only seen them once. Once, Lily. My daughter, who I saw daily, had coffee with daily. I have seen once in two years. They all came, including his sweet boy, Julian. Viola stayed a little longer, and I nearly begged her to stay and never go back, but I knew she'd never stay. So I hid my tears and let her go. She left early in the morning, and I didn't even get up. But since I hadn't slept, I heard the door creak. It's hard to watch your children waste their lives. Kimberly suddenly stopped and threw down the letter. Enough, Vi, this is torture. This is stupid, and I'm not going to help you beat yourself up. Vi looked at her. I'm not beating myself up. Okay, maybe a little, but I I just need to feel her, Kimmy. I miss her so much. The thought of her sustained me for the last two years. Getting back here to her, to you, and now she's gone. I just want to hear something of her, even if it's how I broke her heart. The last part was said almost as a whisper as Viola began to cry. What now, thought Kimberly. What can I possibly say now? She didn't know how to handle a broken Viola. Viola had always been the strong one. Viola always held her, and she cried. Viola was always the voice of reason. She, Kimberly, was not a comforter, unless she was getting paid for it. She sat lost, recalling that, apart from the abortion, when a single tear had gone down her face, she had rarely seen Viola cry. Viola had always had compassion, but had never been a crier. As if Viola read her mind, she said, In the midst of hell, I at least learned how to cry openly. She shook her head, still crying, but now half laughing. Kimmy, my love, I need a bath. Jesse. Jesse sat at a bar and was oblivious to the parade of men around him vying for his attention. He had completed the plan and was just reviewing it for flaws. But there were none. He and Annie had just revised their insurance and he knew that an accidental drowning death on his own property would mean Annie and the kids would be set for life. The plan was simple. Have his romantic date at the dock with his wife, make it the best night of her life and maybe even make love to her on the dock. Afterward, he would tell her he'd be up in a minute. He just wanted to go for a midnight swim. And then once she was gone, he'd slip into the water, swim out as far as he could, and then stop and let the water take him. Nothing would be suspicious. Before the bee's nest arrived, he often had taken a midnight swim. But the lake was deep, and even though he was a strong swimmer, it was vast. It was believable. He could go too far, or or maybe buoyed by lovemaking, fancy himself stronger than he was. It was a flawless plan. He finished his drink and tried to pay the tab, but a man sitting next to him put his hand over his and said, I've got this. Jesse hesitated for a second, and the man seized his moment. I'm Ted. Jesse recognized him instantly, but the man seemed not to recognize him. Thank God for drugs, Jesse thought. Ted tried again. Have we met? You look familiar to me. 
I get that a lot. I have one of those faces, I guess. Have a good night. Jesse disengaged himself from Ted's grasp and, throwing down a 20, left the bar quickly. In his mind, Ted was not even an option. He convinced himself that if the last person he kissed was his wife, he'd die with his soul restored. He'd die in purity. Outside, he headed towards the hotel. He couldn't believe he ran into that guy. Yeah, he knew Ted. Ted was on the fringe of a crowd that Jesse had hung out with, but in those days, 13 or so years ago of clubbing, partying, and crystal meth, Ted was a fuzzy memory, and obviously Jesse was to him. He was pretty sure he'd never slept with Ted, and he was pretty sure his boyfriend Keith had. As he continued walking towards the hotel, he remembered more. Keith had slept with Ted, and Jesse had found out through a mutual friend. In fact, it had been the catalyst for his demise. At the time, he really believed he loved Keith. But now, looking back, he couldn't be sure if it was the drugs that had made him feel the euphoria of love for Keith. He marveled that he survived those times, the drama, the, the constant drama of the drugs, relationships, and who had done what to whom. Life was simpler now. Busy, but simple. Kids, Annie, and work. They'd built a nice life. He was proud of what he'd given Annie. Proud of their life. He'd let nothing get close to destroying it. Until now, the boy chimed in. Your feelings for Mark betrayed Annie. You may have cheated physically before, but you never thought of leaving of setting up house with another person? And for what? He never cared about you. That's the worst part about it. You betrayed your wife for nothing. Jesse grabbed his head to make the boy stop, but even with the boy silent, the tingle of shame washed over his body and hurt his skin. Back at the hotel, he held his breath as he opened the door to the suite. Mark's door was firmly shut, but as he glanced at it, a fresh tingle of shame washed over him. He took five Motrin and went to sleep, praying he might never wake up. But knowing five Motrin would do very little to put him closer to death or silencing the boy. Next time on Ovid's Flea. I thought we had a pact. Faces were off limits. Where was Carlos? He felt for the key above the light. There was nothing there. Ovid's Flea is voiced by Patrick Bruis, Anita Charlassier, Pat Jones, Dan Johnson, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. It is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Flea was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios in Anja Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.